Clay, when I came up with the idea to do this Deadwood podcast, I said, are you interested? And you said, I don't know. I need a little convincing. And I said, well, I could pay you or you could take it out and cunt. And we, uh, we, we came to an arrangement <laughs> one way or the other, <laughs> which we'll, we'll leave up to the audience to determine which that is. Well, you know, if you're running out of either of those and if punching someone in the nose would help, I volunteer one that's well broken. <laughs> We're getting better at this, I think. We're getting better at the uh, finding quotes in the episode to start things off. But if people want to uh, not give us the C word, you can pay us at patreon.com slash the Penske file. <laughs> and that would be the best way for us to get some of our gold abstractions uh, deposited fortnightly or whatever. They we need 25 pounding pistons or something yeah yeah that's a lot of pounding pistons you only had a it five is. pounding and it made a hell of a racket yeah yeah gotta crush that quartz baby yep yeah so we actually are i, I read that uh that deadwood book about like the actual reality of deadwood uh as preparation for the podcast i read all those books at the start and they they talked about the various ways that you can get gold out of the ground which i never really thought about even though i've seen this sure. show and thought about the variety of ways like you you start off in the water and just sort of picking up whatever gold you can find that washes to the surface, basically. Like it comes yeah. off the mountain and gets washed down the river. Then you get into digging up little bits of quartz and like pounding them with the the, the press thing that uh, Alma has in this. And then eventually you just have to dig to hell itself and shake hands with the devil and get some of the last gold that's all the way down at the center of the earth. So It's amazing that it's worth it, isn't it? Because you got to figure, I mean, obviously she, she knows that she's got a, a good amount in there, but still the amount of money that it probably costs to do this. Yeah. It's a, it's like a gamble. The, the overhead is huge. Yeah. It's a gamble. And, um, and they I don't guess, even have the option of doing seven seasons of a show on the history channel. <laughs> I guess this is all kind of apropos because we're being introduced to a character who's done very well in the mining business. We haven't met him yet, but, uh, we're, we're getting glimpses of why Hearst has so much power, right? He's, he's, he, hit big in Comstock, and he's got some other claims that have all panned out. So if you hit claims that pan out, you uh, eventually start to be able to rule the world, it seems. And so we'll, we'll sure. get into that. That's why, that's why Daniel Plainview crawled his way back to town with a broken leg because <laughs> he knew what he had. That's right. He knew what he had. He knew there was oil under there, and he drank it up. Mm-hmm. He drank the milkshake. He drank it up. All right, guys, we're here to talk about new money. So we're going to take a break. We'll play the music, play the theme song. We'll come back and we'll break it down. You're listening to a podcast that is a lie agreed upon. Join Wes and Clay as they discuss HBO's Deadwood and tell you something pretty. This is New Money. It is the third episode of the second season of Deadwood, directed by Steve Schill, written by Elizabeth Sarnoff. In this one called New Money, Francis Walcott, agent for the mining magnate George Hurst, arrives in Deadwood. Swearingen is in a bad way, lying on the floor, suffering from septic shock and kidney stones. Maddie tells Joni who Walcott works for and that he is, quote, a specialist. Mr. W enjoys being cranky with his women, but sometimes when disappointed, his crankiness runs away with him. Walcott enlists Farnham to circulate rumors about the validity of the present titles to the claims of Deadwood. Doc Cochran persuades Doherty that Swearingen must be in dire straits and that his door must be broken down. Trixie asks Star if he'll teach her how to keep books. Walcott is irritated to learn that the whore Carrie, whose passage to Deadwood he'd arranged, has been detained. The widow Garrett fires Sophia's tutor, Miss Isrenhausen. All right, so it feels like it's been a long time, mm. but we're back in Deadwood, back with this episode. 
And I guess the first place to start off with is that, um, well, th- there's a couple things. There's a, there's a little bit of like production stuff that goes into it. We, we hinted at the return of Garrett Dillhunt, uh, who comes back mm-hmm. as Francis Walcott in this one. Uh, there's also, do you, do you want to start with t- discussing Walcott or do you want to hear a little bit of background as to the production of the season so far, including the two-parter that we just watched? Yeah, I want to hear the production because I, I, as I said, I've said a number of times, I was very confused when Garrett Dale Hunt showed up again. Yeah, um, <laughs> even the second time or just the first time, he's still no. Like, this time, I obviously confused. knew. I obviously knew, but this time, I, I found myself focusing in. I, I was I was watching him going. How did they think they were going to get away with this? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's not really that big of a deal. Like it, it happens all it, before serialized television it happened all the time we're in the middle of watching Columbo watching our way through Columbo and uh there's people who have been on that show five times as the killer yeah you know and because none of these stories are the same and nobody has them on tape at the time and right. so there's no the show's running for 15 years or whatever it's like CSI right. you can just come back and be a different yeah. character in CSI. Robert Culp has been on it four different times as yeah. four different killers <laughs> this guy keeps getting out just can't yeah, keep him in Michael Mann does it a lot too. Like there's there's um in Miami Vice, which is semi serialized, not really serialized, but there's some they there's some threads that run through. In the first episode, Sonny has this coworker, this other cop who they uh I don't know if you remember, there's another cop who they find out is on the take from Calderon. Yep. And they uh you know, he goes to his house, his kid's birthday party or whatever, and all the cops show up. That guy, that actor, shows up as a completely different character in like the second season. Yeah. And I think he's been in a couple movies. So it's just like a guy Michael Mann must like working with. Yes. And so it happens on TV a lot. Um, But this feels like the latest in TV timeline. Right. Where you could do something like this and it would still work. And it's like tenuous here because Deadwood is serialized. Yep. And I have to imagine... They probably liked Gilla, uh, Dillahunt, um, and they probably figured, well, the characters are so different that most people who at the time are not recording this and they're, they're watching it week to week probably won't even really realize it's the same guy. Yeah. Yeah. I was. Um, I remember when we watched it the first time, I was unsure if it was the same actor. And mm-hmm. so I spent the first bit going like, is it? And then we looked it up on our phone, and we're like, "Oh, it is. It's the same. Uh, it's the same guy." Then I spent. I, I do remember spending a little bit of an of a time wondering how how his con was so in depth. You know, like how he how McCall had successfully yeah. convinced everyone that he was a different person in this universe. That's, like that's so, I think what I thought the first time too. I was like, "Wow, he really <laughs> managed to clean himself up and 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 get a whole new shit together." Really fast, yeah. So I, I did, I did remember feeling that. I, I think it, that went away pretty quickly, but it was something I was definitely thinking of with a modern TV brain, which is just like, how are they going to tie this all together? Because this is kind of absurd at this point. But yeah, I don't know. It's um, it is interesting. I mean, Milch just liked him, and he wanted the actor back. So there's a little bit from the Deadwood Bible here that I can read. Um. Milch had talked about bringing in George Hurst, the mining magnate who ended up owning most of Deadwood's gold claims as an antagonist in the second season. The real Hurst was a compar- comparatively benevolent as far as 19th century plutocrats go, but Milch re- reimagined the character as Ebenezer Scrooge by way of Al Capone. Um, 
this is just a little quote about Mil, uh, Hearst here. The process of abstraction that Hearst embodies, which is symbolized in gold, is also at the very heart of what makes us human, Milch wrote. It's the best in us as well as the worst, and often both at the same time. Once you give yourself over to an abstraction, then the aggressive impulse, which is usually satisfied with territory or sex, becomes abstract itself, and you may start to cut throats. He then decided that George Hearst was going to be played by Garrett Dillahunt. So that was the original idea was that mm. Hearst was going to be the main antagonist of this and they were going to bring back Dillahunt. And the way that it makes a little bit more sense is that they were going to use makeup and aging makeup to make oh, Dillahunt sure. look different. So he was going to be under a lot of makeup, basically. Sure. Um, they abandoned that for some reason and they decided that uh, they were instead just going to Not have- worth it is what. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> they were. So they abandoned that eventually. Um, it says- you know, Dillhan was planning to be Hearst. He had spent the summer reading about Hearst, reading books about him and sort of planning to do this role. And then Milch called him up and said that we're going to change the plans. You're going to play this other guy. You're not going to be Hearst. You're going to be uh, a sexual sadist, an emissary or an advanced man for Hearst. I think it's right in your wheelhouse. Dillhan was taken aback at the thought of being a sexual sadist was being in his wheelhouse. But he said, that sounds awesome. And Dillhan then said, what if he like knows a lot about Hearst? <laughs> Because I've been reading a lot about it. <laughs> this knowledge everything. needs to go somewhere. <laughs> so that was um, that was basically it. And to make it even more sort of egregious, one of the things that they were saying was that one of the early plot lines that they were going to do in season two was that Jane tracks down McCall to Yankton where he's on trial and she kills him. Oh, really? And what they were planning to do before it all went to shit was they were wondering how feasible it would be for Dill Hunt to play both Jack McCall and George Hurst in the same season. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they're just fucking around at this point. <laughs> so so that's the difference. And they, they ultimately went with him, but they did make him uh, this Francis Walcott character who were introduced in this episode, who is basically um, an emissary for Hurst, who's a, sort of a lead scout, I would describe him as, who comes mm. out to places and sort of um, sets up things so that Hearst can show up. Um, I'm he extremely. The, go ahead. He is the Silver Surfer to Hearst. Yeah, so, Galactus, to Galactus. He is. Anytime you destroyer any, of worlds. <laughs> I don't know if there's another Eater of worlds. Excuse me. I mean, they must have taken the Silver Surfer idea from some biblical thing. But who is who's the original emissary for someone that I that not being mm. a kid who grew up in the 80s would recognize as the Silver Surfer? You know. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I feel like there's that's always, it's kind of a, it, it's got to be a, a classical figure of the, the herald who, uh, yeah, who shows precedes up. Yeah. The, the larger uh, threat or whatever. I'm sure, honestly, I'm sure it probably goes back to like the Iliad or something, you yeah. know, yeah. where it's whoever goes out to announce the coming of Agamemnon or some shit. Yeah. Yeah, we're showing our, our ignorance here. There must be one. It's just weird that the only person I ever think of in that role is the Silver Surfer. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a great character, though, isn't it? It's like it's... It's a good idea. <clears throat> yeah. Having having someone to as basically the hype man for your villain yeah. is such a good idea because it, it allows you the room to just build anticipation of, of what this guy... It's like a reverse Colonel Troutman from Rambo, mm -hmm. where in Rambo... Colonel Troutman, the only the only point Colonel Troutman serves is to tell people how badass Rambo is <laughs> and why it's a really bad idea to fuck with him. Yeah. Yep. And so if you've got a show like this where Nice reference with the know, trout too. There's a big trout in this episode. Oh, that's so right. Troutman, yeah. yeah. Well Colonel Troutman's nickname was his call sign was Rainbow. So. <laughs> um 
But with a show like this where so much of the the plot of, especially it seems in this second season, is the uh, oncoming encroachment of the outside world, having someone, they've already kind of done this a little bit with uh, Bosch, kind of plays a similar role uh, as like this emissary of... of um, the Yankton the, magistrate. The Yankton yeah. and the people who are coming for, for Al. And to have someone like uh, Walcott come in who's this much more of a direct line to someone who is a direct threat to everybody's interests. And it's what's funny too is I remember watching this the first time. Um I don't know if I was paying super close attention to the Hearst talk. I just kept hearing the name Hearst. I don't know if I re- realized it was George Hearst. Yep. And so on my mind, I immediately thought it was William Randolph Hearst. Okay. And which is <laughs> which which they didn't even need to do any character work there cuz I'm like, "Oh yeah, William Randolph Hearst. Uh-huh. Notorious asshole, uh model for Citizen Kane, yep. perfect villain." Even though that's like 50 years after this, but <laughs> he got started early. But the name my point is, the name Hearst carries a lot of weight yeah. even now as yeah. as a character. All you need to do is say that name and you kind of understand where they're coming from. Yeah, it would be like Rockefeller or something like that. Like, right. You know, right. You you get the implication of of what it is. Yeah, so this is um I think not not to keep harping on it, but I feel like Hearst is almost has more implications with coming with it than Rockefeller does cuz like I don't know if Rockefeller really has much modern clout anymore other than just like, oh, yeah, rich guy. Yeah. But Hearst, I think because of Citizen Kane, has this built in. It's almost like you know who he is as a character already because of the Citizen Kane connection. Yeah. And so you can kind of have a shorthand for that name just because of the public consciousness, the modern public consciousness that remember that know him through Citizen Kane. So it's 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 interesting. Like Rockefeller I think would would work, yep. but Hearst I think carries more um malice with it. Gotcha. Than Rockefeller does. Yeah, I, JP I, Morgan on the other hand. Or the, the I mean, it might be the, the like who's more sinister, the Rockefellers or the Vanderbilts? Uh, the Vanderbilts, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the Vanderbilts would be another good name. I know the Vanderbilts used to be I don't know if the Rocket, maybe I'm just confusing them. The, the Vanderbilts used to have parties. Like the Vanderbilts are famous for having it all and losing it all over the course of like a night, basically. Sure. But they, sure. They, they were like the creators of the meme of lighting cigars with $100 bills, which was like $10,000 back when they were yeah. taken around. Yeah. They had money that I don't think any human alive right now fully comprehends how much money those people had. Yeah. yeah. Like we went down to the, um, the mansions in Newport, which many of which are owned by Vanderbilts. And uh, there is one mansion. There's this one guy who is – it's my favorite mansion down there. It's called uh, uh, Belcourt Castle. Yep. And it was um, built by a new money guy that all of the Vanderbilts and everybody else thought was a, was a piece of trash. And so he specifically built his house where the front of it was facing away from the street that all these were on mm-hmm. as basically to show his ass to everybody. <laughs> and then um, – <clears throat> That and also made sure the front of his house faced the water, but the water was three miles away. So he bought all of the land between his ho- the front of his house and the water, so no one could build on that. Yeah, you got anyway, to have he, beachfront property at that place. Oh yeah, say, yeah. <clears throat> he was married to one of the Vanderbilt daughters. Yeah, and uh, paid for the, the the building of one of those mansions, which was specifically used as her closet. Yeah, yeah. The whole mansion. You walk into this thing, and it's 
God knows how many millions of dollars. And the purpose of this unbelievable building was for one of the Vanderbilt girls' closet. Yep. Now they have off. Uh, now they have those uh, the rich people just have like couriers in New York who like bring their clothes to them from their giant closet that's probably in New Jersey somewhere. Yeah, it's yeah. the same idea. Wasn't the, uh, what the Great Gatsby is based on the Vanderbilts? I think right. Oh, is it? Yeah, it, I, I think that so. sounds right. Yeah, yeah, because that's the same sort of setting um, as the Newport mansions and stuff like that. Uh, except Gatsby's on Long Island, I think. But either way, um, so this is new money, Walcott. I, I mean, so. Uh, are we both at the, I'm of the opinion that it was a strange decision, but I don't think it ultimately hurts the show. Once you, w- once you can clear away the, the clouds of like overthinking what's going on, um, yeah. I, I'm fine with the decision to bring back uh, Walt or Dill Hunt as Walcott. Although apparently some of the cast thought it was not a great idea. Like the Dane Kelly said, it was okay. Is anyone going to buy this shit? But he did a good <laughs> job. I think most people didn't know it was him until they looked at the credits. Walter Hill, now following the production from a distance, was likewise bewildered. Doing something like that, quote, kind of destroys some of the integrity of your own show. So, but did you find it, uh, maybe they were a little bit too connected to it, but you you don't seem to care particularly too much as long as you get past the the fact that it's happening. Yeah, I think it's it's a little bit distracting for the first section of the episode, but then it's like, okay, I mean, whatever, who cares? Yeah. If they had brought back uh, Carradine, that would be different. But yes, yeah, that would be a choice, right? Because you don't see you don't see what happens to Jack. I guess maybe yeah. that, maybe that would have been help more helpful if you. That's I think that's part of the problem is that Jack just sort of falls off from the story. Yeah, and so when he shows up again, your first thought is like, oh, well, he's cleaned up. Well, right. I mean, because the original story was they were going to show him, you know, like so they were going right, to actually right. show his death, but they just abandoned that. I think wisely. I don't. I don't really need Jane out going. I, I don't need characters on the show leaving the town really all that much. Like I don't need to mm. follow Jane in some other situation uh, far, far away. But yeah. this is new money. So, what are your thoughts about new money? Which, um, honestly, the the big sort of structural takeaway from this one that I. I didn't really recognize or think about too much is that um, I, I had said in the, when we started a lie agreed upon the two part that we did before this, I remember the first half of the second season being my least favorite stretch of the show. Mm. And I think that some of it, it's, it's a, a little bit of a weird. So there's, there's the, there's more production notes to this, which is that what they wanted to do was that they wanted to eliminate. So they, they had this idea of Walcott coming in, right? And what they had to do or that what Milch thought had to be done was that they had to remove Swearingen from the situation somehow because Walcott is allowed to get into the town because Swearingen is not around to sort of stop him while, oh, he, while he talks yeah. to the other characters. So they came up with this idea for kidney stones. And uh, McShane is out of it for a couple episodes. And the when they were producing this, HBO executives were saying, you can't take McShane and Swearingen out of the show because he's the best character in it. Yeah. So they were upset. And so this this deal was hatched that the two-parter that opens the show was kind of made after they had already had their storylines going as a way to get McShane active early in the season. Mm. So that's why the two-parter feels a little... The, the two-parter to me feels almost like if you were to make a movie of what the first season of Deadwood was, that's what those two episodes are, you know? Yeah. Because it, it kind yeah. of rehashes the the, the Bullock and Swearingen stuff in a very condensed manner. 
Yeah, that's that's not really that surprising to hear because th- my one big takeaway from this episode was that this felt like the real beginning to season two. Right, and that's inten- that's intentionally what was designed through the production, and they stuck the yeah. two episodes on. So you're you're exactly right that this feels much more like the first episode of the second season being set up. Yeah, yeah, because I remember we, we we were talking about how those those first two feels like it's a lot of dealing with plot lines from the first season and kind of wrapping stuff up and and. Uh, not really and, and treading whatnot. new ground or anything. There's right, no, yeah, yeah. no new characters. Yeah, the only thing that really is new is that uh, Bullock's wife shows up, yes. really. And, yep. and he and uh, Alma sort of break up. Yeah, which is so it's not unimportant and it's not filler. It's just a right, deliberate right. attempt to delay Swearingen getting taken out of the show for uh, a couple episodes. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I like this. This was good. I. Um, there was a couple things that I wasn't tracking. I'm not totally sure what's up with Tolliver. Like he's really jazzed up, but I wasn't totally tracking what what he's all freaked out about or where where his nervous energy is coming from. Yep. I know it's connected to Walcott, but I'm not totally sure what it is. Yep. Um. But uh, yeah, I thought it was good. I, I thought the. Uh, I, I actually really liked all the stuff with the kidney stones. I thought that was was, <laughs> was good. Yeah, it was awful, but I, I really liked the way that the whole um, the whole saloon shuts down because nobody can get in touch with Al and nobody can make a decision without Al around. Yeah. yeah. And uh, man, EB continues to be in my personal power rankings. He's very close to the top because he is he's a great character. <laughs> he's so shitty <laughs> yeah. and. Uh, selfish um, just uh, so his, selfish yeah so selfish it's his whole downfall of this episode and like when he goes in to talk to al <laughs> dance like do you want to leave a message and he's like yes <laughs> right. dear al <laughs> <laughs> my favorite part is how he ends it he's like your friend eb yes. <laughs> won't leave a message in fact i do yes al if you're not dead and already moldering I send news to revive you. A fish to rival the fabled Leviathan has swum into our waters. Get well soon, and we'll land the cocksucker together. Your friend, E.B. He has some great stuff in this episode. There's a, um, there's a, when Walcott comes into the hotel, and he looks at the oatmeal, and he's like, this oatmeal is old. And he turns to, uh, what's his name? Richard Richardson. The, Richardson, he's like, this is old, and he's like, what? It's forty-five minutes till the three hours, and then he's like, stop, stop spouting gibberish. And my other, my other, probably my most favorite one, which is feels like something that I would say, is I forget who he's walking with. I think it might be Walcott when he says, "This reminds me of an old Italian proverb, but I can't really remember what it says, but <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember the details of, so I won't try to recount it." Yeah, <laughs> he's so good. Mr. Walcott, Mr. Farnham, the contents of that letter are a deep disappointment. Not a word of any find or promising location. You opened it then. Are you trifling with me? It occurs to me, sir, this conversation were best had elsewhere. But not postponed. Not postponed, Mr. Walcott, no. We are men, sir. When we disagree, we come to resolution promptly. Where are we going? The gym saloon. It's just over there. Please take your hand off my shoulder. Some ancient Italian maxim fits our situation. 
whose particulars escape me. Is the gist that I'm shit out of luck? Did they speak that way then? Yeah, he goes, uh, Farnham says, some ancient Italian maxim fits our situation whose particulars escape me. And Walcott yes. says, is the gist of it that I'm shit out of luck? And then Farnham says, did they speak that way then? Which is kind of a reference to the criticism of Deadwood having too much uh, cursing. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. so good. <laughs> I like Walcott's, I like Walcott's, um, will you please stop fucking touching me? <laughs> yes. <laughs> But I, I love they they continue the thing where he hands him the letter and the first thing he says is this is damp. Damn. <laughs> yeah, they've um, E B. So we can kind of kill two birds with one stone. E B. and Tolliver are in the exact same situation in this episode. So okay, they're both. Oh, I see. All right, they're both being used by Walcott to prepare the town for Hearst's arrival. And what Walcott wants them to do is both of them to spread rumors that it's unlikely that the gold claims are going to be honored when the United States comes in and annexes mm-hmm. things. So they're trying to stir up this idea that like the, the miners will all get worried and think that their claims aren't going to be honored. So they're going to sell them for a low price just to get some kind of money out of it. Gotcha. And so what Walcott is doing is he's setting up Tolliver to be the front to buy those gold claims for Hearst down the line. Ah, I see. So okay. what Tolliver is doing is Tolliver is doing a very good acting job, although he is slightly um, perturbed by what he's doing, where he's trying to get everyone in the town and all of his employees worried about the situation and not to reveal that he's actually lying about it. But he is conflicted because he's-, he's lying in the end with the... Um, I think her name is Leah or something. The the girl, Lila. Lila. Yeah, he's laying within the bed because uh, she tells him that she prays for him every day, and it obviously upsets him. Uh, but he is sort of um, he's conflicted at least a little bit, as much as Cy Tolliver can be conflicted about something. You're going to find out something now about yourselves, your fellow man, how you handle adversity, or rumors of adversity, or ill fortune, or turns of luck and i'm not gonna further rumor or be a party to that bullshit you want to know where i stand you just look the fuck where i'm standing you'll find out all you need to know i ain't going anywhere and if anyone else wants to two weeks fucking severance is waiting for you right fucking now you just step the fuck up step right the fuck up That shows me something. When any time, day or night, anyone wants to fucking waver or fucking change their mind, you just step right the fuck up and get your severance. He's doing a better job at acting than E.B. is, who who goes to Richardson, <laughs> he tell Richardson? basically <laughs> does the uh, we're having a fire sale scene from <laughs> Arrested Development. Go, Richardson. Speak not <clears throat> a word of this to anyone. I just like it's after the... Um, you moved the gravestones, but you didn't move the bodies. Because that's, that's basically what he's bringing to the scene. Because Evie has that great Milchian... Because there's, there's a whole runner in this episode about um, Leviathan and stuff like that. Like ancient, mm-hmm. gi- ancient giant fish beast is like waiting under the calm waters to gobble up everything. And so there's like the trout that they reference in the stream that they're going to catch. There's other references to, I think EB mentions Leviathan. And then when he's talking to Richardson, it's just this, it's this great, like, um, theatrical performance where he's sloshing the bucket around saying like we're in the stormy seas Richardson and he's talking mm-hmm. for about five minutes in this Milton dialogue and he goes do you understand me and he just goes no 
<laughs> he just simplifies it for me. It's just like the claims aren't going to be honored, Richardson. So, yeah, Richardson becomes a fan favorite. He's a recurring character who gets more and more to do as things go on. Uh, but dealing with E.B. Farnham is his, his main uh, vehicle for being in the show. But I yeah, that's, that's, up, the, uh... that's the two of them. That's, the, that's what E.B. and... So E.B. was trying to set up uh, Walcott by selling him the letter fraudulently and the, yeah. making him imply that the, the letter had some sort of gold claim knowledge in it. And when Walcott reveals that he's not going to be uh, scammed or conned because he works for Hearst, that's when E.B. has to fall on his sword and sort of just like, I'll do whatever you tell me to do, just don't get Hearst angry. You at know, him. I don't have much sympathy for Walcott in that situation. Who pays $10,000? Yeah for a letter <laughs> from the guy who runs the hotel of the place you just breezed into. It was it was weird he didn't ask to see what was in the letter or like right. get a hint of what's in the letter. Yeah. Yeah. I w- I was going to say uh Richardson joins the pantheon of uh characters who just are named after the actor who played yes. them because yeah. they didn't bother thinking up a, a new name <laughs> along with uh Trejo from Heat. Oh, nice. Danny yeah. Trejo. Yep. As just call him Trejo. Trejo. Yes, <laughs> makes it easy for the actor because uh, that actor is apparently not really an actor. He's just kind of like a mm. career background extra who was in. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. Who was in the background of this one? But he's um, he becomes a very endearing character. He doesn't he doesn't always have a lot to say, but he's he's very funny. Yeah, he is. Uh, so yeah, that's the that's the Tolliver and E. B. thing. That's basically the main thread of what's going on. So they had to remove Swearingen to get those two plots in line because Milch couldn't see. A situation where Swearingen doesn't somehow prevent this from happening by recognizing who he is. Mm-hmm. And so he's found Tolliver in kind of a moment of weakness because Tolliver is still getting over the fact that Joni and uh, Eddie Sawyer have abandoned him. And he's feeling kind of perturbed about that and he just wants to make a little bit of money. They do a lot of exposition filling in too, where Tolliver has apparently been in contact with like a Chinese gang that he's calling in to take over Chinatown, which is what him and Walcott are talking about when they first meet each other. So that's the other thing that is being brought up that we haven't seen. You've approached a group in San Francisco that does business with my employer. That group and employer bullshit really quickens me with fucking trust. The group you've approached is a fraternal Chinese organization. Tong is not a clever enough word. You've offered them a contract to send members to this camp. That organization has a pre-existing arrangement with my employer. So you work for who, Wilcott? The railroads? Some mining combination that brings those slant eyes in by the boatload? No, sir. I work for one man. Jesus Christ. That's never one of us? George Hurst. I meant no disrespect of any kind to you or Mr. Hurst by any word I've said from the moment we've met. I understand that. I've... Nothing but respect for Mr. Hurst in Comstock in Montana. Every other place he's ever operated without Jacob Jeffs. And the overture you made to the group in San Francisco showed imagination and foresight and a tolerance for risk. It was impressive to Mr. Hurst. We want to work with you here. You do? Yes, we do. This show just has this, this such weird oblique dialogue where they just drop in plot points that they just people guys people just talking about it. Yeah. And you don't have any any reference for what they're doing. You'll eventually see about. it. To be to be fair, you will see this happen. No, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm sure you will, but yeah. it's just one of those things where it's like, oh, this is just out of left field. And I mean it's not it's it's just it's not distracting, but it's 
it's uh, it takes a little getting used to just because that's not generally how TV works. Yeah. And I don't mean that as a criticism. I'm happy that someone is, is doing something that is making you have to pay attention and uh, changing up the format a little bit than instead of just uh, the usual sort of uh, way that they, they play these things out. Yeah, it's probably a little bit of both because they do... It is a thing like we always talk about, like you do have to really pay attention to what the characters are talking about sometimes to get these glimpses into the other things that they are mentioning besides like what's obvious that they're talking about it. But mm-hmm. like the, um, it's also probably just kind of a saving their asses thing where the production had gotten to a point where they hadn't established this and they need, just kind of need to sneak it into the script. Um, so, but it's it's certainly not a show that, it's kind of the same as what I was talking about with Jane. It's not a show that will cut to, you know, a Chiron that says like San Francisco two weeks earlier. And it's like right, Tolliver, right. you know, Tolliver delivering a letter to the Chinese gang or something like that. Right. Yeah. So you do have to rely a little bit on, um, on that kind of thing. But, um, I mean, in that scene, like he's just going a mile a minute and then they hard cut to woo. And I was like, okay, so. The, he's important for some reason. Yeah. I'm sure we'll find out. Because <laughs> he was, he said something about the Celestials. I'm like, okay, all right. I yes, kinda, yeah. So Tolliver's talking about this. the 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 Chinese gang that he's calling in to deal with him, and then the camera cuts to Wu. So that's ah, what the the implication is. Gotcha. But they're all coming and to take over Chinatown. And um, I guess that you know, obviously the connection. That's why Walcott knows of her, of Tolliver because the Chinese gang that Tolliver has contacted also works for Hearst. So they made that connection, oh, which is why okay. Walcott comes looking for Cy Tolliver in Deadwood because they know right. that something is afoot and Tolliver is probably a likely candidate to be, to be able to be uh, swung to their side. And I did like what they were doing with him too, where, where he's in that scene with Lila. He's got a, he's got a, a very delicate, about, a very, a very strategically placed blanket is what yes. uh, he's got. <laughs> yes, they both do. Um, but he has this air about him of like, for once, he's ahead of the curve about what's going to happen. Yeah, and he's got that sort of excitement about him that he knows what's coming and and he has the information that that uh, right. Usually, usually Al has this kind of information. Yeah, yeah. So he's happy to be in a winning situation, and that's when Lila hits him with the. Uh, the I'll pray for you line in which you shut up stupid. <laughs> um, so it's, it's Tolliver is, I don't know if he's conflicted or just feels bad about something, but he's, he's uh, not, he's not as clear cutly motivated, I think. And he also, you know, it's another thing about the show's credit. His acting performance is so well done that Tolliver himself is actually a good actor in what he's doing, yeah, you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah he is. Doesn't doesn't sell it as like this is Cy Tolliver spinning a yarn for his idiot uh, employees who are just going to go off with it. That's the EB storyline, right? Like that's what the EB right. thing is. It's 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 kind of a weird thing. It's like the show the show does the subtle version with Tolliver, and then it's like if you're not getting what's going on, we'll have EB do the, exactly the same thing, sort of, and you know, and like have it have it done to Richardson, who who won't be able to understand what's uh, being said without an explanation. Yeah, this this show. I I feel like this show is everybody on this show should be nominated for a, a best supporting actor Emmy. It's like it's just such top top to bottom fantastic character actors, and nobody nobody in it. Like the closest thing to a leading man is Timothy Oliphant, but at this time he's not really like 
a star, no. right? No, he's not. No, up and, and coming, every, but not not yeah. a star. But everybody else in the show is just like a solid, you know, double and triple hitter character actor, and it's 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 just they nail it every time. Yeah, yeah, they do combine. This um, is like a Moneyball team of a show. It, <laughs> <laughs> Good reference. We'll have to do Moneyball for the Deadwood Patreon special. Now. <laughs> and I say that as someone who only has a passing understanding of what Moneyball is about. <laughs> Well, we, we don't know the Vanderbilts from the Moneyball, uh, the Michael Lewis's <laughs> from the Vanderbilts, but we do know something about Deadwood, I suppose. Uh, the only the other story, uh, just to get all the stories out of the way before we go into it more, is uh, Joni establishing the whorehouse uh, with... Um, so this is another kind of example of exposition that comes in that is not really hinted at before and you kind of have to yeah. you kind of have to pay attention to what they're talking about but the the short of it is that what's the name of Joni is it Maddie? Yeah, it's Maddie. Yes, um, Maddie, yeah. Maddie came to Deadwood aware of Hearst of uh Walcott and knows who Walcott is. And she knows his predilections towards what he likes in girls and she has brought a girl that Walcott seems to have a particular fondness for, but she's mm-hmm. not in Deadwood yet. And so she's trying to delay, but she knows um, she knows what Walcott is up to and who he is. And that's one of the main reasons that she came to Deadwood and that her and Joni have this argument sort of about it because what they're basically doing is that they know how important Walcott is and who he's connected to. So they're basically willing to let someone who we're going to learn quite a bit about uh, who should not be allowed with the women to be allowed with some of the girls that they have. And Maddie's intentions are exposed when there's some line where Joni asks, like, how do you see this ending? And Maddie says, for the girl, it might be in a wooden box. So mm-hmm. they did, they do know what they're setting up, and that's what Joni's a little bit conflicted about in the way Tolliver is. Uh, what the storylines all have in common is that Milch is kind of exploring the season is really about like how far people will go to not to maximize their own selves into like abandon the structures that they're building around them. Like it's kind of the selfishness thing about um, Walcott and Hearst represent a new kind of money source. And like a, if you get on their good side, you're going to be sort of set for life and how, how far are you willing to go in order to protect what you have and to try to get into those type of situations with people like mm-hmm. that. And so this is that uh, the the prostitutes represent the clearest cut thing of that, which is that they're going to literally sacrifice people to Walcott in order to get on the good side of Hearst in order to make some money. Hmm. So any thoughts about that plot line? Yeah, that's... Um, I think it works well for the show because uh, all of these characters are in sort of a... Uh, um, I don't want to say they're in a desperate place, but a lot of them are, and it's, uh, and a lot of them are there for personal financial gain. So, putting putting an element into the mix that uh, is kind of playing on the weaknesses of everybody is is a pretty uh, pretty interesting way to go with it. Yeah, it's nice that it lines up with the insecurity about the goal claims too. Like the whole thing yeah. is up in the air; you don't really know where you're going to land and. They've all traveled hundreds of miles probably to get to Deadwood. And I think um, uh, Mrs. Bullock has the line here. She she has some line where they're talking in the beginning about living in the house. And she's like, I just hope that the things 
the way they are now or the way they stay. She has some line about that when she's talking to Bullock about she she wants the situation to be the way that it is right at that moment. And it just mm-hmm. shows everyone's kind of unstable in their, their situations and trying to sort themselves out. And it has a little bit, too, of like... <laughs> how uh what's your price for selling out basically right yeah everybody yeah. everybody kind of is um whether or not they want to admit it there's probably a number at which point they would jettison yes. whatever they've been working for and know? walcott found the two easy marks i think yes. in the town yeah which is to his advantage because which you know is it's it's uh it's really interesting that it's eb, EB is the obvious one right but Tolliver is not quite as obvious, and it's really a uh, it really shows you the difference between Tolliver and and Al. Yes, because I don't think Al would go for this at all. No, at I, not we, an, we talked about this before, right? Like Al represents more of the cohesiveness of the town yeah. than than Tolliver does. So if, Tolliver feels like he's on the outs with everyone abandoning him and never really feeling like he belongs in the town. He's much more of a um. Even down to their games, like Swearingen doesn't swindle. Well, he does, but like Tolliver's games are are literal swindles of people. Yes. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. And he like everything he does is a front, right? Like all of the um, classiness that he he presents is all just a front. He's just a a, a gangster, like everybody else is. Yeah, yeah. And uh, which, as we've talked about before, makes Al weirdly the more honest of the two swindlers. Yes. Because right. Al doesn't really have any pretenses or, or fronts as far as what he's about and what he's after. I mean, he, he will lie and cheat and steal, but he will do that and admit to you that he's doing that. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, it's just so the show, I'm only realizing it now, but the, the show is just so beautifully written because just of what we're talking about here, they have the scene where Joni and Jane are talking to each uh, Trixie. Trixie and Jane are talking to each other. And Trixie talks about why the only reason that Jewel is allowed to work at the gym is because Al doesn't want anything bad to happen to her. And when they're talking mm-hmm. about the like the shades of Al where, where Calamity Jane is sort of thinks that he's just this cocksucker asshole and Trixie explains a few things that he does out of sort of like, for lack of a better term, like the goodness of his heart that, that yeah. show him as more of a humanized character. And Calamity Jane kind of gets embarrassed and walks away and says something about like, well, I guess people can have all shades or something like that. But the the show is aware of it. And like the reason you have to take out Al is because it's that Tolliver mirroring situation where Tolliver is just the reprehensible version of what Swearingen is. Now that's fucking progress. Cocksucker upstairs. Across the way, whorehouse where I work. He is a fucking cocksucker. Locks the fucking door. So people can't get to help him. Fucking ashamed to be sick. You know he had it designed to murder that little one. No, I didn't. Hell yes, he had it designed. Charlie and me spirited her from camp, forced him to a second victim more suitable to his cocksucker's purpose. Think they're any different if they've had their fucking dicks cut on? They ain't no fucking different. You gotta like their friends or... They won't teach you numbers or every other fucking regulation they set. Anyways, as far as it fucking goes, he also brought the cripple from that orphanage. Uh, what orphanage? Don't buy his bullshit about the nine-cent trick. What cripple? Jewel. That he says he's got around against some 
hooplehead, only having nine cents and wanting a piece of pussy? That ain't it. Why she's around is... It's his sick fucking way of protecting her. I'm gonna get whiskey. There's entries on both sides of the fucking ledger, is the fucking point. As I already talked like a fucking Jew. The show's firing on all cylinders, I think. What did you, uh, what did you, we haven't really talked about Walcott. What did you think about Walcott as a character outside of Dillahunt? Um, very he's educated. Interested. Yeah, very, very yeah, educated and well spoken. He's, he's very educated, very well spoken. And I don't think he really gets interesting until the scene with Joni. Because he is very kind of flat, and I don't mean that in a negative like performance way, but he's just a, a very sort of uptight. In control. Um, I would describe him yes. as in control, yeah. Yeah. Um, and in a way that is, everybody else on the show is so emotive yeah. that he is he's a lot more um, harder to read as far as, as what he's doing or what his intentions are. And so when you get that scene with him and Joni at the end, where she's pushing his buttons and some, or I guess opening his buttons. Yeah, not just um, pushing them. Yeah. And she's trying to figure out what his deal is, which allows us to also figure out what his, try to figure out what his deal is. <clears throat> um, that and, and having, knowing that he has this violent side to him, you kind of start to worry about Joni a bit and is she in over her head and like, what is this guy going to do? And I, I thought that scene was, was really effective. Yeah. It's like before she goes into the, uh, the room with Walcott, Maddie has that line, but if she kills that cocksucker, <laughs> like mm-hmm. it's, it's mm-hmm. where we're all done for basically. Yeah. Um, Tolliver or not Tolliver Walcott. I, I think they, my impression of Walcott is always that he is, uh, he's totally in control, and he is collected at this point. Um, E.B., I, I think his his power sort of comes out most effectively in the scene where E.B. swindles him, right? And, t- and he walk out, comes in and tells him, like, give me my money back, basically. And so E.B.'s like, well, how about we go talk about this over at the gem, right? Because the gem is sort of a place of security for E.B. because mm-hmm. nothing's going to happen there because he's more friendly with the gem employees than Walcott is. And Walcott, you know, Walcott goes over there and it has a power and a stature that allows that setting to not mean anything to him. Like they, it goes to, it just goes to show and emphasize the importance that Hearst's name carries, where if he works for him, he's kind of an untouchable figure in the town. Mm -hmm. And so he can go into these sort of enemy bars and deliver bad news to the person who brought him there. And nothing can really happen to him. And he, he's a character who has that going for him, which is that he knows no one can really be a threat to him because if he's killed, it's just going to be much worse for the person who kills him. So people have right. to leave him alone. It's, it's the typical like mob setup. He's a made man and he can't be touched, basically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I I, I really like the way that EB is, is uh, setting up the situation like he's he and Al are going to reel this guy in. And, and totally pull one over on him. And then by the time they're halfway to the saloon, this guy already has EB's number and is like, no, nope, you are working for me now. Yeah. <laughs> well, who is it? Is it, is it Maddie who comments on Walcott dealing with EB saying that he's going to 
dick him around basically and then devour him or something? Yeah, she says the creature I saw outside our place last night, who you said is in the camp, who is the camp's mayor, now perches like a vulture over that man at breakfast. And Joni says, Farnham, he owns a hotel. Maddie says, have you affection for Mayor Farnham? Joni says, no. And Maddie says, good, because the man the mayor expects to digest is going to toy and play with Mr. Farnham from camouflage for as long as he finds it amusing and then make him a meal of his own. So she knows him yeah. and knows his reputation and stuff. And Maddie's whole point you know, is basically to, to explain the dark side of Walcott in this episode. You know what's what's I appreciate about this show, too? I mean, Walcott has that one line. When he says, so what you're saying is is the gist that I'm shit out of luck. But no, there's nobody in this show who I, I feel like the more modern version of this is after Maddie has a line like that, Joni would say, so what you're saying is he's fucked. <laughs> you know you know what I mean? <laughs> right. That's like, I feel like that's the thing that they're doing on Star Trek now where somebody says something and then someone has to undercut it with a joke line or, or whatever. Yeah, or uh, like a dumbed down... <clears throat> It's kind of yeah. the Richardson thing. It's like, if you're not getting it, like, here's the thing that I just said right, uh, right, to you yeah. again. Say it again. Yeah. Um, I just um, I see EB's letter now here. I have to read it because it's funny. Uh, he says, Al, dear Al, if you're not dead and already moldering, I send news to revive you. A fish to rival the fabled Leviathan is swum into our waters. Get well soon and we'll land the cocksucker together. Your friend, EB. <laughs> <laughs> and then he comes back with a PS, right? Yeah, he says, you might add as a postscript, I also have the news you dispatched me to secure of the newly arrived cunt. <laughs> God, this show. <laughs> He's got a letter. He's going to write him a letter. Um, Man, imagine imagine being, what the hell is that guy's name? The guy who plays EB. I can't, it's another. William he, Sanderson, right? William Sanderson. Imagine being William Sanderson and having a career of, kind of middling character parts that you know he's he's got a very distinctive sound to his voice and a very distinctive look and so he's useful but he doesn't really get a lot to chew on at least not the stuff that i've seen you know he jf sebastian and blade runner isn't yeah really much to write home about you know he's kind of i would say he's cast for his uh droopy dogness more than anything else I should tell you, Mr. Wolcott, I have seen men in this very camp feeling themselves victimized, seek redress in fashions I thought imprudent. Violently, you mean. Thus, at the lesson, dearly bought, as you would have it, is where I would leave this business. In any case, I was an intermediary in this transaction. Ah, then. Having been a pupil, it falls to you now to instruct your principal. I wonder, Mr. Wolcott, if some second letter couldn't be drafted to put some sharper point on the lesson. Maybe remunerative to both of us. So your idea would be that we fuck Mr. Hurst twice. I miss the name, sir, but I can aver as a general principle my days of fucking anyone are long in the past, whomever you represent. George Hurst of the Ophir find and the Comstock. Of course I know George Hurst. Oh, you know him personally? I do not know him personally. I do not know him personally. But of course I know of George Hurst and his reputation and accomplishments and wealth and his power and reputation. And I would say as well, most importantly, I have nothing to teach that man. George Hurst need learn no lesson from me, nor would I permit him entrance into a lesson, either inadvertently or by accident. I wouldn't subsequently and immediately cancel him back out of. 
or his agent or an intermediary. So I think the only storyline remaining is, uh, well, we see a little bit of the Bullocks at the start of this, and we get a little bit of the Seth and Alma uh, antagonism, I guess would be the way to describe it, mm-hmm. um, which mostly ties into being more of an Alma thing than a Seth storyline at this point. Seth seems like he's kind of moved on at this point because he's got um, he's got Anna Gunn at home, he's got William, he's got, he's got the whole life that he's now sort of embraced as he's going to be the father and husband to those two, uh, where Alma feels a little bit more left out on the lurch and is, uh, this is Angry Alma, the episode, I think, almost just uh, lashing out at everybody. She's got the nose, punch somebody in the nose thing that you talked about earlier. She uh, she wants to buy EB's hotel just to spite him uh, from himself. She's got the money to do it th- at this point. And uh, she has some other nasty, inter- oh, she fires Miss Isernhausen, too, in this episode. So um, Alma's on the warpath. What did you think of Alma or Seth? I find Alma to be very interesting <clears throat> from this from this angle because she is. Um, Amy they give her, her sorry, so Amy, yeah. Well, Amy that's yeah. Her, yeah. I mean, that's the thing, right? Yeah. Like they give her a, a resp- her response to this stuff is so uh, selfish yep. and so you know. I feel like in most Western movies, this character would be much more understanding about the situation, you know, and then it would be like unrequited or, or a star crossed lover type shit. Right. Whereas here she's just being an asshole to everybody. Yeah. yeah. In a way, in a way that is like very much, I'm a rich person who's in control. You guys can go fuck yourself. Kind of way. Hurst. She's acting like uh, walk on. Right. Which is, I, I think is great. Like yes, you're right to think she sucks. Yeah. Yeah, she's. It is funny that like the the breakup in a traditional Western would be considered like a noble sacrifice, sort of. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, exactly. and Alma's Alma's not going to have have any of that. And she's I mean, just think lashing of, out. Think of think of Tombstone, right? Like the 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 relationship with uh, Wyatt Earp and uh, Dana Delaney in yep. Tombstone is so much more cordial. Even even uh, Earp's wife, the one who's addicted to laudanum, she just like disappears eventually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. she kind of gives him a scowl and then walks away, but you don't you don't get any comeuppance from her end or or, you know, Dana Delaney never starts lashing out because Wyatt Earp is married or anything, you right. know? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, they yeah, it's much more of a um you know, Alma, Alma's kind of an interesting character. I, I, I am, on this rewatch, just from paying more attention to her, she's definitely, um, in my mind's eye, she was more of a virtuous character who kind of got screwed over in some ways. But she's, you know, she made her own bed, really, through a lot yeah. of this. Like, it, she's not innocent in the stuff that went on. And she, she chose to fall in love with the exact wrong guy. And it's not like, and Bullock didn't hide the fact that he has a family from her either you know like there's no right right there's no real place where she can feel that she was wronged by him to to an extent where she was sort of um being led like uh, unaware of what the situation was mm-hmm. so she she is latching out and i do like the the similarities that she has to walcott and what walcott is doing here which is that she is just throwing her money around um and making everyone else suffer and i do love the little um 
relationship that she has with Ellsworth at this point where he explains how all the mining works to her and everything, but also serves as her sounding board for the people that she's going to uh, try to screw over and yeah. tries to talk her out of it. So I like the little relationship that those two have. Yeah, I think her. I think she's a more realistic character in that she is like all the other characters in this in this show. She's a Western archetype that they've kind of cracked open and made more um, realistic. I guess realistic isn't the right word, but complicated. Complex. Yeah, complicated. Yeah. She's a much more complex character than these uh, wistful female leads tend to be. Yeah. Yeah. Which is great because she's a real. I, I think she's a great actress. Yeah, you know, and she's. I think she's doing really well with with this role. I'd like to buy Mr. Farnham's hotel. Do what with Miss Garrett? To renovate and make my residence. I can think of better locations, ma'am. With friendlier views. None that would offer the further pleasure of putting Mr. Farnham in the thoroughfare. I expect a man like Farnham finds quarters pretty easy. I'd expect, even with his venality satisfied, a man like Farnham would feel himself dispossessed and unanchored. I think he'd be very sad. And I'd like to see him in that condition. I like her scene with Isrenhausen when she fires her there. Um, I like the dialogue in that scene. I can't quote any of the lines. It's not particularly a quotable scene, but they, um, mm. the way they talk is very, they're both clearly educated women and their conversation has this like cruel pettiness, but intellectual superiority. It's a real battle of the wits when they're talking yeah. to each other. Um, and they're, you know, she gets fired because almost just kind of lashing out at that point, but she feels that she's not doing a good job being a teacher to um, Sophia and well she gives her i forget what the line is but there's a there's a point where alma's like how come you never take her to the store and she's like that's not my fucking job <laughs> right. you know yes yeah <clears throat> it's um you know you, i guess you could say that alma is lashing out in the way that she feels she's not being a mother to sophia because she's out with the gold mine and stuff like that and she's not taking her mm. to the store either so there's a kind of like you know she's lashing out with her own insecurities against miss isernhausen um but nonetheless, we'll see of that character. Um, but it is, I just, I do like that scene and the dialogue between those two. I think it's it's pretty clever um, and inventive. Uh, yeah, I, um, what was I going to say? And I don't know if there's anything I, to say about Bullock either. Sorry, I was trying to trigger your job sure. your memory, but yeah. Uh, Isrenhausen was, Isrenhausen, is that what it is? Isrenhausen, yep. Isrenhausen is a strange character because... I was coming off the last episode not really knowing what her, where her uh, loyalties lie because I thought that she was kind of, my interpretation of the way that she was talking to Alma was that she was purposely trying to break up her and Bullock. I think I might have been reading too much into it because she just seems like she's trying to do her job. Yes. Yeah. But I I, I really liked the bit at the end where she's like, you know what? Why don't you sleep on it? And Alma's like, no, go fuck yourself. (laughs) She's like, well... How about we circle back around this to the march? Like, no, go fuck yourself. Yeah. Like, All right. You've had a you've had a stressful day. Let's not be yeah. hasty with our firing decisions here. Uh, but she's got a good point. You can't like she needs some kind of severance package if she's going to be fired. She's got nothing else yeah. going on out there. You got to have. Yeah. She what she said. She came from Chicago specifically to do this. Yeah. She does. She has no other. She she has. She says something along. She has nothing else lined up out here. So what is she supposed to do? And almost says that we'll come to some sort of a severance agreement between the two of us. She's got the money for it. 
she's gonna buy she maybe has to put off buying another 20 ramming piston machine thing but she'll, <laughs> she'll be able to get that money out there somehow um book doesn't do charlie and other and jane see each other uh they have a brief scene with each other jane is struggling with her alcoholism at this point a little bit more uh, but that's pretty much it. The scene between those two. It's nice, but I don't think it. Uh, I'm not sure if there's much to say about it unless you disagree. No. The one other scene that I thought was interesting was uh, Trixie and Saul, where she wants to learn how to do the books. Yes, learn to be accounting. And, accounting. Yeah, and she says you can either if I need to be paid or you can, you know, we take it out of me in sex. Yeah. And he's and he's like, I don't want you to do that anymore, and she just flips out on him, <laughs> which, <clears throat> which I get. Like it's it's. It's the kind of response where she's Saul is just kind of white knighting her, yeah. And she's like, "Dude, give me a fucking break! I don't. I'm, I'm not asking you to do this to save me or anything. I just want to know how to have a job." <laughs> I like her her line after that scene when she's talking to Jane out in the thoroughfare, and she just says, she has some phrase where she, turn of phrase where she's like. She's like, the items aren't lining up on both sides of the ledger. He's like, they got me talking Jew now or something like that. With the, <laughs> and she's been talking to Saul and uh, he won't teach her how to be an accounting, uh, how, to, how to balance the books. Um, yeah, but she wants to spread out. She has to branch out a little bit from her gem since she's now no longer at the gem. Where is she? Anyway, I don't know where she stays. I don't she, know. Um, Does she live in the hardware store? I think she might. Because yeah. she has that bit where she goes to Al, and 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 says, uh, I'll, "I'm going to give you my information, and then you know what? It's probably better that I just go back and get more information from the, the mm. hardware store." Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she must be over there. But yeah, she cares about Al. Uh, the whole town seems to care about Al and is suffering with the uh, the kidney stones that have completely clogged <laughs> clogged him up, which seems uh, pretty awful. He can't pee, so he's going to explode. It oh, seems. Oh God. That must be so fucking awful. Yeah, and then Doc Cochran shoves a pair of scissors up his dick. <laughs> and it's like, this will fix your problem. And he gets a couple drops of pee out, and that's that's it. That's all they can do. That I, I find that very so, visceral. That thing that he was using is so big. <laughs> like it, that's, You don't want a small one, Clyde. You don't want the audience. You don't want the audience. And the audience is he's got the tiniest pair of scissors you've ever seen. He's poking well, that guy's got there. I yeah, I hope. I yeah. hope you would. Well, not but for it was, not for your pride, I think. Not for I was I was poor pride. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> use the smallest one you have. I don't give a shit. <laughs> I was try I was looking at that that thing. I couldn't tell if it was just uh if it was if it was scissors or if it was like some sort of forceps or something, but like I was looking at that going like I don't even know like the angle of how he's gonna do this. Yeah, you gotta you gotta wiggle it around a little bit. It's like snaking oh. a, t- a drain in your tub. Oh, you gotta just god. keep jamming it in there until it until you get to the the clog. Oh my god! I think they're forceps. Uh, I think that that would make the most sense to me. I think. Um, but even the uh, the idea of like if he once he once he hits the stones, they'll make like a clinking sound. That I find that yeah. disturbing. Every everything about it is disturbing. But it, it sounded like he had. I don't know if he had his stethoscope on the the tool or if he had it like on Al's pelvis or something. Yeah, but I, I think that's how he was hearing it. Yes, yeah, through just hearing the the bell. I, I found the uh, just the idea of hitting stones there to yeah. be disturbing. Oh yeah, yeah. I um, I may have already talked about this. I can't remember, but uh, I I had a biopsy on a a thing on my uh, uh, thyroid. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple, a handful of years ago, 
and uh, don't worry it's nothing it's fine mm-hmm. um but it was it was so strange because it, it didn't hurt because they numb you up but they put this needle in there and i can feel <laughs> you feel it, it felt like yeah. i could feel it in my neck and it felt like almost like someone was like strumming my vocal cords <laughs> With like a piece of metal, and it was oh my god, it was awful. Beautiful song, yeah. When I had uh, spine injections, they numb you and then they hit you with the big needle to get the in, like inter uh, disc area. Yeah. So it's like the, that's the same thing where you don't feel the needle, but you feel it like grinding against you, basically. Is it's like yeah, it's weird. It's yeah. it's almost worse, you know. <laughs> <And I> just, <laughs> like, at least if it hurts, like you know what's going on to yeah. a certain extent. Yeah. I say that now, but I don't want it to hurt. Please don't make it hurt. I um. I don't know. Maybe we've talked about this too. It feels like it's been a long time, but I feel like my dental appointments are now five times as long as they ever used to be. And Mm -hmm. they also, uh, they do that thing where they like measure your gum inflammation, where they jab you with the little needle a thousand times. Oh, interesting. Do you just do that? But I don't think I've ever had that. No, it it always makes me um, tear up, and I always feel so emasculated when the hygienist is just like, (laughs) "Do you need a tissue?" It's like, no, I'm fine. I'll just, I'll just fight through these tears. How come there are no male dental hygienists? There's not a single one. That's really interesting. Now that you say that, I don't think I've ever had one. Ninety nine percent of my dentists have been males, and the hygienists are 100 percent female. Yeah, hold on, uh, Caitlin. Have you ever had a male dental hygienist? I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you've you've gone through a lot of dentists, so I that's that's through a lot of dentists. Yeah. No. Oh, okay. But well, yeah, but no, right? No. Yeah, that's weird. That's the that's the college you got to go to as a young man. You got to you got to broaden your horizons and become a hygienist. Not sure. Yeah, I don't know. It's well, weird. Then it's it's then you end up uh like uh, Ben Stiller and and meet the parents. Yes, I, the, yeah, the, the big joke is that he's a nurse. <laughs> he's a male nurse. Hasn't <clears throat> aged well. Uh, mm. Maybe not. Maybe that's a little bit harsh. But it's. Uh, I feel like male nurses are very common. There are male nurses yeah. all oh, over yeah. the place. Yeah, yeah. I. That's a weird one, isn't it? Because it's like the the joke should be that the that Robert De Niro's character is just unevolved in that manner. But the, from what I remember, the joke is very much that no, him being a nurse is is the joke. Yeah, is the joke. They they kind of stretch it out a little bit because he's dating into a family where they are all doctors, right? And so when he says that he's in the medical field, they're like, right, oh, like right, what's yeah. your where'd you do your residency or whatever? And he's like, I'm a nurse, and they go, oh, oh, okay. So it's it's that kind hey, of thing. He knows what he can and can't milk, and that's important, right? Yeah, he's he's a damn good nurse, fucker. <laughs> um, like again. That's such a gay lord fucker. Gay fucker. <laughs> it's still that, that wouldn't fly anymore. That's still a good, pretty good movie. That's a that's a cable classic that I will always watch yeah. no matter where it is in the uh, in the show. It's not it's not super funny or anything, but it's got it's got a couple. Me and Amy always laugh about the um, uh, Owen Wilson has the <laughs> after he sets fire to like his like wedding altar thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Still, it just has a line. He put so much goddamn lacquer on it. Me and Amy always uh, say that whenever something <laughs> catches on fire. Um, that's it. How, of, how often do things catch a fire at your house? <laughs> Maybe not the house. That wouldn't be a laughing matter, but someone else's house is very funny. Yeah. 
Uh, we had a building burned down down the street the other day. It was very sad. It was like the business, it was like the the, the coffee shop building. Oh, it was very stinks. sad. Now it's just a big hole in the ground. And they're gonna put well, they some. Got that, they got that bar. They put too much lacquer on it. Yeah, they did. They, the dry cleaning chemicals had too much lacquer. Uh, well, I guess we're done with the Deadwood episode anyway. Um, thanks everybody for listening. That's new money. So you uh, generally positive on that one, Clay? Yeah, I wasn't sure going into it because it was a lot of um, <clears throat> it was so much sort of jumping around. But I think the the Walcott stuff sort of anchoring everything uh, made it all work pretty well for me. How do you feel um, about losing Swearingen to it? I remember being very annoyed by this, and it, which is probably why it taints my memory of the first half of the second season because Swearingen's not as prominent in it. Um, mm-hmm. Now I, I kind of understand it, why it has to be done to allow Walcott to come into yeah. it. And yeah. I do like the performance of Al being sick and stuff, but they do take a, they took a gamble taking like the king or the queen chess piece off the board. Um, yeah. It's, it's, what, it's one episode, you know? He's been, yeah, he's he's been, gone he, for like five he, episodes. No, he's gone for a couple. He was also getting sick in the last two, right? So he wasn't... True. He, yeah. he was still more involved in that, but th- this is the first one where he's been... He doesn't have a real line of dialogue in this entire episode. Yeah, I I still think it's I it it didn't bother me um, because I think what he does do in this episode is I was just wa- looking at it from just a sheer acting standpoint where yeah. I was like, this is just brutality. Yeah, of uh, this is either awful to have to do or actually kind of fun. Yeah, you know, <laughs> as an actor, you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh one other bit that I noticed I was I was scanning through IMDb. One of the uh what's the name of Joni's is it the Shea Ami or something yep. like that? Yep. Shami. One of the whores at the Shea Ami in that scene, I assume it's that scene where they're telling them where to stand. Is, when Walcott um, is uh sort of yeah, they're he's expecting coming Walcott in. to come in, yeah. One of them is uh Fiona Dorf, Brad Dorf's daughter. Oh, yeah. Uh I didn't know that, but a lot of the daughters, I think tallest, I think Powers Booth's daughter is also one of the oh, horse. Really? Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> come to set, honey. <laughs> Maybe we'll find our way to put you in the show. Betty Powers or Betty Booth, yeah. right? Betty Booth. <laughs> She's Fiona Dorif is 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 pretty intense. I I, I saw um, the only thing I've seen her in was. The one, uh, uh, the first Chucky movie that she was in, yeah, where she, which you know, it's her dad does Chucky one. Yeah, she, she, she was the the lead, and it was all inside a mental institute. I, I feel like it was either must it wasn't. I think it was like the sixth one because it was <laughs> after the. It wasn't Bride of Chucky, which is four, and it wasn't the one after that, which is five. Yeah, so, so a very recent six. Chucky movie. Yeah, yeah, within the past ten years. And uh, she was good. She was a weird. She's 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 inherited her dad's weirdness. Let's put it that way. Hmm. Hmm. That's good. Yeah. Uh, so I, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of daughters in this show. Uh, apparently, of the actors, they needed to fill the ranks. Well, literally every female character is played by a daughter, which is weird. That's true. It's yeah. just like Mother's Day wouldn't be possible without a man. That's what I tell Amy. <laughs> way to take that one back. <laughs> Hey, well, that's not entirely true. I mean, they've got science. They don't. You can bypass that whole step. You still need. You still need a man. To, so I don't think you can. For now, you can, I mean, you get <laughs> Chat, Chat GPT, GPT making. Give it a couple months. <laughs> give it a year or so. Chat GPT, please write my genetic code, but make me ten times more attractive. 
Chat GP DTF. That's right. I like it. Nice. Nice. All right. Well, I guess we're done with new money. AI, AI can't write a joke like that. <laughs> AI. Um, <laughs> that's, that's really funny. <laughs> we're done with new money. <laughs> if you guys enjoyed the show, you can support. I'm us just in. imagining. I'm imagining a stand-up that only tells AI jokes, and his his tagline is he just goes AI. <laughs> That's uh, we'll have to type that script in the chat GPT for and see if it if it gives us anything. We'll, we'll uh, I'll use it to write up write up the podcast uh, blurb because that's what chat GPT does for me. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. everyone else, if you're interested, you can read the blurbs at the site, which is thepenskyfile.com. You can support the show at patreoncom slash file, which has all the shows, not just this one: Star Trek, Badass, the horror show with Clay and Amanda. All that good stuff is over on patreon.com slash the Penske file. If you want to support us, do it there. We much appreciate it. Thanks for listening, everybody. The next episode is called Requiem for a Gleet. So we're four episodes into the second season. Things are moving along. I think we've got our rhythm back here. So maybe now mm. we're continuing having an episode every week. Thanks for mm. listening. Thanks for your patience. Clay, do you have anything you want to say or are we done? I would like to say uh, it is not my recording setup and it is not your headphones. It is just my voice that is uh, distorted today because of this cold that just won't go away. And also, if you happen to have a local comic book store, I have uh, a new comic book out, which is uh, Batman White Knight Presents Generation Joker. Number one came out last week. So it's the first of six issues about uh, the, the... Speaking of AI, the the AI hologram of the Joker <laughs> stealing a Batmobile and taking his twin kids on a, a bit of a road trip. Nice. So check it out. Check it out, guys. I'll put a link in the description down below. Thanks very much for listening. We'll see you next week with Requiem for Gleet. Bye. Are we going to argue? We're partners, ain't we, Maddie? Ain't that a lot of planning and thinking to not let your partner in on? Not sharing it before I even knew the trick was in camp. Don't put me wrong, Joni. It don't put you right. Far as an atmosphere of trust. Joni, was there any odds when me and my girls got out here that you might have told us you'd changed your mind? I guess there was a chance. Or I'd have found you dead. We moved along. No chance I moved along. Only way to guarantee an outcome, honey, is contracting to be fucked. Everything else is a chance including me, letting you down. But if I do, using my head won't be the tip of How will you bring the girl into it? At the trick's fierce insistence. What's our split? 50-50. What's the girl's end? I wouldn't rule out a wooden box.